Well, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. You're just stepping into Christ Central. We are in the second week of a seven-week series uh, in, a, in a sermon series of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, uh, looking at Revelation chapter two to three, the last book of the Bible, the, the seven letters that are written to seven churches. Uh, these are Jesus's direct words. He is speaking directly through the Apostle John to these churches in various cities, and they are his words to us this morning, Christ Central Church, to us, the church here in Durham. And, and so we're gonna look at the letter to the church in Smyrna. Uh, two of the seven letters Jesus offers no critique. Five of the seven he's critiquing very harshly, you'll see this. But two of the seven he offers no critique. Smyrna is one of these two. He's, he's merely commending them. And I think it's extremely important for us to understand the context of these churches and the realities of the cities so that we can understand why Jesus is saying what he is to the churches. So let me give you a little bit of context for the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was... 35 miles due north of Ephesus, which we looked at last week, uh, Ephesus. Uh, Smyrna would have been the next stop for the postman on his route after leaving Ephesus. Uh, we're not sure when Smyrna, the church, was founded. It wasn't really mentioned, not really mentioned uh, in the New Testament besides here, but we do know this about the city of Smyrna. It was one of the most prosperous cities in all of Asia Minor. Uh, it saw Ephesus as its main competitor for trade, for culture, for beauty. Smyrna boasted in being the pride of Asia. It was a beautiful city. It was a wealthy city. On their coin was the inscription, first of Asia in size and beauty. Now, Smyrna was primarily known for its loyalty to the Roman Empire. So Smyrna as a city had this great pride in being loyal to Rome and loyal to Caesar. They pled allegiance to the empire. Caesar was their Lord. So Christians in Smyrna therefore had a very difficult and challenging culture to live in. Would they seek to knock down the Roman empire through force and power declaring allegiance to Christ would they retreat from the city and from the culture and form an alternate society in the name of Jesus? Or, or would they live in their city, be faithful citizens of the city while being allegiant to Christ and not the empire? Durham, North Carolina is a city that I love. I hope you do, or maybe you're growing to love it. Now, Durham as a city has its issues to deal with. Gentrification, crime, education, just to name a few. Yet, Durham is constantly ranked currently as one of the best cities to live in, one of the best food cities, right? It's described as a place, uh, it's voted on as, as one of the best places to retire, one of the best places to find a job. It's known as the gritty city. If you've heard that, it's, the, it's an eclectic city where everybody is welcome, no matter who you are. Historically, it's been a place where races of all, all races thrive economically, yet there's still great division. It's currently been tabbed as the startup hub of the South, was written about in the Atlantic Weekly re recently as leading the way nationally for, for being a place of minority and female-led startups. Durham is, has been and is a wealthy city in many regards. A common slogan, keep Durham beautiful. Durham, keep Durham, Durham beautiful, right? There is a pride of being from or living in Durham for many people. Durham is a place where people from all over the world move because you have Duke University, 
North Carolina Central, you have jobs in the RTP, the desirability of living caused people from all over to move to this city. And it's a beautiful city with a plurality of beliefs, many religions, different cultures, all types of people living together. So the question for us, church, is do we seek to knock down with force and power all things opposed to Jesus and his kingdom? Does Christ Central Church become Westboro Baptist Church? If you know Westboro Baptist Church. Do we seek to retreat from the culture of Durham and create our own alternate society? I hope if you've been coming just for a week, you would know that we would answer emphatically no to both of those. The question for us is how do we live in allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom? How do we resist the culture when we need to resist while being faithful citizens in a city that we love? There's there's no easy solution. Though I believe what I'm describing is the biblical model for living uh, that we see. Being a people that engage and live faithfully in a place while being loyal to Christ. Resisting when we need to resist, cooperating when we can cooperate, all without compromising our faith in Jesus. Let me give you just an example and then we're gonna jump into our passage in Revelation. Take the Apostle Paul, if you know Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Paul travels to Athens. Athens was a very religious environment. Like Durham, Athens was a place of plurality of beliefs and cultures and people. There were Jews in Athens who practiced their faith. There were Jews who didn't. There were philosophers. There were those who worshiped other gods. One god was, had the title the unknown god. Athens was a peace, place of peaceful coexistence of, of gods and ideas. And I think Paul's approach is helpful. I think it's important to see that Paul did not overturn the altars of their gods. He, in fact, studied them. He did not take the opportunity to denounce their culture. In fact, Paul quoted from their poets. He did not resist the philosophers to retreat to the safety of believing Jews. He played their game, if you will. Paul cooperated with the culture of Athens, all the while never compromising his loyalty and his trust in Christ. And I want to say that is the approach, I believe, that we are called to live out as Christians here in Durham. Now, our passage this morning says that when we live out this call to be loyal to Christ while faithfully living in Durham and for Durham, we will experience suffering. Now, I preface this all to say that we don't seek out suffering by provoking a culture. We don't exalt suffering with some martyr's complex. But if we are Christians pledging allegiance to Jesus over over allegiance to our culture, we will suffer. The Christians in Smyrna refused to bow to the emperor. They would not call Caesar Lord. They called Jesus Lord. And many interpreted it as treachery and suffering ensued. And so I want us to look at this letter to this church, this faithful church in Smyrna. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able, to read the word of God to us this morning. It's a short passage, short letter. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, the Lord Jesus. And he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray again. Lord God, I ask that you would come and speak to us, that your spirit would speak into our spirit, that you would, Lord, illumine our thoughts and inflame our hearts and change the way we live because you have spoken to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the one who preaches, be pleasing to you. Would you open our ears and soften our hearts so that we might hear from you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me read you some more scripture. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he preached, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Jesus adds in John, woe to you when all men speak well of you for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Remember the words I spoke, no servant is greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In this world, you will have trouble. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Romans 8, if children, then your heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. Faith in Jesus and suffering in this world are twin privileges. They go together. Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed at an early age because of a car accident, and she's famously known for saying, I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus than on my feet without him. I wonder if you would say this morning that I would, be rather, I would rather be with my sufferings and knowing Jesus than with whatever this world might offer and without him. Let's look at at how this church in Smyrna suffered. Look, it's it's filled with suffering. The first thing we see about their suffering is that there's poverty, verse nine. They're poor. Now, this was probably connected to a lack of trade business because they were unwilling to worship the emperor or a lack of job offers for the same reason, or Christians would not engage in some shady business deal because they wanted to be honest in their work. Now we do know that that many Christians had their homes pillaged because they pled allegiance to Christ and not the empire. So they were poor, material possessions taken from them. Many of us will have to make decisions in our life because of our allegiance to Christ and to his ways that might result in the loss of money or material possession. The loss of a job opportunity because you're unwilling to act in a certain way. you, You might be willing to say no to a job opportunity because you don't like what the job stands for. You might lose on a business deal because you wouldn't cheat or fudge in some way. Poverty is one of the ways this church is suffering. Second way that we see the church suffering is slander. Verse nine, there was an attack on their character. The Christians were being mocked. There, there were false rumors about them. And, and maybe you, this has already been true for you, but many of us will be caricatured or misunderstood. People might think us as Christians strange or weird. We might be mocked for not bowing to our culture in some way. The third way they suffer is prison. Look at verse 10. They're imprisoned for their faith. 
Now, most of us haven't experienced being in prison, though some of us have, and uh, though I, I think we're not too far, maybe, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not prof- being a prophet here, but we're in our culture, if we do stand for Christ, that may not be too far away when that, there comes a time. But I will say that there are Christians all around the world who are suffering imprisonment because of their faith in Christ. Christians all around the world who are loyal to Jesus rather than being loyal to their country and loyal to the religion of their country. The, the fourth way this church suffers is death, verse 10. Some were actually dying for their faith in Jesus. Again, we're not in a culture right now where we have to, to pledge allegiance to, the Christ, to Christ to the point of death, but they were, and many around the world today are dying for their faith in Christ. February 2nd, 156 AD, Bishop Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And he fled from this city that that we're looking at. At the pleading of his congregation, they they told him to leave because of of the persecution. He was tracked down in his hiding place. Polycarp made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors. He asked permission if he could retire for some prayer, and he prayed for two hours, and then they traveled back to Smyrna. And the officer who was in charge of transporting him back told Polycarp, why don't you just recant? What harm can it do? Just just sacrifice to the emperor. And on arrival, he he was roughly pushed out of the carriage before the proconsul in the amphitheater, again saying, recant, and Polycarp refused. And and the proconsul said, respect your years. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Swear and we will release you. Revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And the proconsul persisted, swear by the genius of Caesar, I have a wild beast. If you will not change your mind, I will throw you to them. Call them, Polycarp said. And then they replied, since you make light of the beast, I will have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. And angry Jews and angry Gentiles gathered wood and they fastened Polycarp to the stake and they lit the fire. And Polycarp prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and this hour for sharing the cup of Christ among the number of martyrs. What leads this man to do such an act? to be willing to suffer in this way? What leads men and women all over the world to be willing to die for their faith today, who who are being imprisoned for for us who are mocked and slandered or to to lose money and material possessions? What leads into this type of suffering or to be willing to suffer in this way? I'm gonna give you two things. Understanding who is involved will allow you to suffer this way and understanding why we suffer will allow you to suffer in this way. Let's look first at who is involved in our suffering. Our passage reveals two beings that are involved. The first is Satan, the enemy of God, verse 10. There's a synagogue of Satan. It says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Throughout the book of Revelation, one of the principal actors is Satan. He is the prince of darkness. He is the author of evil and suffering. He's the culprit. He is the one who's like a roaring lion looking to devour. He brings evil and suffering. So we must realize 
Christians that, that we have a real and active enemy looking to destroy us, looking to get us to compromise our faith in Christ, to surrender to him and to his ways rather than to Christ and his ways. But there's a, there's a huge but here of who's involved. There's another one, and it's God himself who is involved in our suffering. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 gives us an understanding of who God is. He's the first and the last. It's a reference to Revelation 1. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Nothing comes before him, and there is nothing after him, which means there is nothing beyond his scope. He sees all and is in all, even our suffering. He's also the one who died and came to life. Jesus is the one who conquered both sin and death. He is the victorious one who rules over all, especially our enemy. He rules over the devil. He's victorious. And look at verse 10. It says, you will be tested for 10 days. 10 days. God allows suffering. But God has the power to make it stop. He sets suffering's limits. 10 days. He is a God who is in control. Our God in our suffering is the one who is eternal, victorious, and in control. So when suffering for being a Christian comes our way, maybe you get rejected, maybe you get mocked because of a belief or a lack of willingness to act in a certain way, maybe you get characterized as a Christian that you just think is unfair and you find yourself ostracized. When we, when we suffer in this way, there's a normal feeling that we've all felt before. And it's that feeling of being alone, right? Alone. And in our aloneness, fear strikes our hearts. We're afraid. Afraid of not having friends. Afraid of what people might think about us. Afraid that if we don't make enough money, we won't be secure. We're afraid of the pain that might come. Fear is a strong force. And it can lead us all to do anything in our power to avoid suffering. So in our fear... We could be led to compromise. And this is why Jesus says in this passage, do not fear what you are about to suffer. As Christians, we don't fear suffering because we trust and we follow a God who is the first and the last. He's eternal. He's a God who died and rose again. He is victorious. And he is a God who is in complete control of our lives. This is the God who's in the midst of our suffering. So we have to ask then, why do we suffer? If that's who's involved, why do we suffer? And that's a big question. And there are many passages throughout scripture that speak about it, and I can't cover it in its entirety, but I wanna speak to the why of suffering through our passage this morning and share what Jesus is saying. Verse 10, it says that you may be tested. Suffer so that you may be tested. Now the enemy tests us to destroy us. The enemy tests us to lead us away from God. God allows testing so that we might be refined. When, when you refine something, you place it under heat. You place it under the heat to transform the object, and out of the fire comes a new object. Suffering hurts. Suffering's painful. Sometimes to the point where there's just no words to describe, like we see in Psalm 88. There's just no words for some of the suffering that we encounter in this life. But in the pain, in the anguish, in the fire of suffering, we are emptied of ourselves. 
See, suffering is like taking a sponge full of water and squeezing it till it's dry. See, suffering really does squeeze us out. There have been many times in my life where I've felt the pain of suffering in the Christian life. And many times I've wanted to say, Uncle, I give up. Let me, I'm just going to go with the culture. It'd be way easier to live that way than to, to live like a Christian. I give up. See, to remain faithful to King Jesus, we will, we will face difficult choices for us personally, for our families, for jobs that might come our way, possibly for our own physical lives. And it will lead to suffering. I mean, just think about some of the truths of the gospel that we believe the Bible teaches. Listen to some of these truths. That, that humanity is sinful and guilty. That God's judgment is real. That there is an impossibility of salvation apart from God's grace. That the cross was necessary. That eternal life is free to all who accept it. And most of those truths that I just mentioned undermine human pride and arouse opposition in our culture. And if we hold to those truths and then we live out honestly the Christian life in our culture, things like being true in business, having chastity before marriage, or fidelity after marriage, or contentment in the place of covetousness, self-control, or self-sacrifice, if we live in that way, we will find ourselves on the outside of our culture, oftentimes feeling alone. Suffering empties us out. It can hurt, but it's here. And the emptying of ourselves, the squeezing out of self-dependence, where we actually have more room to be filled up with God. We're squeezed out and we allow room for Jesus to come and to meet us in that hurt and pain and to be filled up with him. This is called transformation. (laughs) This is how we are changed. This is why Jesus can say, you are poor, but you're rich to the church here. You're rich. You're rich in what matters most, knowing and experiencing the Lord Jesus. Really isn't much of a wonder why Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, said that suffering should be considered one of the marks of the genuine church. That the mark should be faithful preaching of the Bible, sacraments faithfully administered, discipline, care for the church, and suffering. (laughs) Suffering should be a mark of of a genuine church. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor in Germany, hanged by direct order in a concentration camp in Germany in 1945, wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer writes, suffering then is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Listen to me. God is always purposeful. He is always purposeful in our suffering. It's to refine us and to transform us and to fill us with himself. Samuel Rutherford beautifully wrote, the great king keeps his wine in the cellars of affliction, not in the courtyard where it shines. Jesus speaks to to this church in Smyrna and he says, I know your tribulation. I know your suffering Jesus is speaking to us, Christ this morning, and saying, I know, I know you, I know your pain, I know your fear, I know your loneliness. Jesus knows you. 
It's like the spiritual song, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. Nobody knows but Jesus. Jesus is our greatest confidant. He is the one who suffered for being loyal to his father. He would not serve Caesar. He was mocked and left alone and crucified. He is the one who died and came to life. So as we live in loyalty to Christ and we live faithfully here in this city of Durham, there will be suffering. But for those who suffer and pledge allegiance to Jesus, there's a gift. There's a gift awarded to the one who conquers, the text says. It's the crown of life, verse 10. And there's no fear of the second death, verse 11, which is the final judgment of God. See, last week the imagery used for the church in Ephesus was the tree of life. That was the, the, award, the, the reward, the tree of life. The letter to Smyrna, Jesus uses, an imagery, uses the imagery of a race and the crown of life being the reward. Have you seen the iconic photo of Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics? You've seen that photo where they're raising their arms in 1968? It was in the midst of the civil rights era just a few years after the Civil Rights Act of 1965, African Americans were finally allowed to compete uh, in, for the U.S. in the 1968 Olympics. But as you know, 1968 was far from a year where equality reigned for African Americans. It was the year Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. There was still much oppression to individuals and systemically. So Tory, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos placed first and third in the 200-meter race. They ran the race for the United States, right, faithfully for this country they were a part of, but two men fighting the fight of racism and oppression for black athletes and African Americans everywhere. And when they finished the race and they awaited the medals, the iconic photo of Smith and Carlos raising their hands in solidarity with other African Americans all around the country and people oppressed all around the world saying, we resist. We resist and we will not let ourselves and our community be oppressed. I think that is a, a beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to live faithfully as Christians in our world and in our culture. To resist our culture in ways that we need to resist and say we are living for a kingdom not of this world. We pledge allegiance to Christ, not to the ways of our culture. We must run the race of allegiance to Jesus and know that when we finish the race and we fight the fight, we will be crowned not with just a medal, but with the crown of life, eternal life awarded to all of us who run with perseverance the race marked before us. And the only way we can run and the only way that we can be awarded the victor's crown is because Christ the victor has gone before us and he has secured the ultimate victory through his suffering. I mean, imagine a race, a race of life, and imagine Jesus standing at the finish line waiting for you to finish, cheering you on. Imagine it because it's true. He's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, cheering us on right now to finish the race. And when we finish, he will gift us his life. He will crown us with his life forever. Here's the beauty of Christianity it's not only that Christ is waiting for us at the finish line telling us, try harder in your own effort. He is the one who started the race, put us in the race, is with us today as we run the race, and he will see us through the end. There will be many dangers, toils, and snares 
within this life that we live. But we live with great hope in knowing Christ now and knowing that we will have life with him forever. So we don't live in Durham as Christians against this culture, provoking it. We don't retreat from the culture of Durham and live in our own safe enclave. We live in Durham and for Durham, yet doing so without compromising our allegiance to Christ. So let's run the race, church. Let's push. Let's be diligent. Let's exert. Let's run knowing and trusting and believing that Christ knows our trials. He controls our destiny and he will invest us with the crown of life at the end of the race. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us. Help us to to know your goodness and your love and your grace in such a way to know that life with you is better than anything apart from you. It's better than anything. And Lord, in the midst of our suffering, those who might be suffering this morning, those of us who will suffer, may we hold true. May we hold fast because we know you're faithful to hold us and to never let us go. That you started the race, you're with us as we run the race in your power and you will see us to the end and you will reward us in eternity with you forever. Lord Jesus, thank you. In your name we pray, amen.